You'll find that on page 1224 in the Church Bibles. Second Peter chapter 3, which we've been looking at over a number of weeks. Mike finished last week at chapter 10, and I'm going to pick up just to set the context again by reading verse 10 down to the end of chapter 3, and then we'll look really at verses 11 to the end. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men. And fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. This is God's word. Here at the end of his letter, Peter talks about living in the present as we look forward to the future. And he calls us to do two things. First, Invest in the future by pursuing holiness now. Second, grow strong by learning and keeping in mind the story you are part of. First of all, in verses 11 to 14, Peter says, Invest in the future by pursuing holiness now. In verse 10, Peter has spoken about the fact that the day of the Lord, that's Christ's return, will take everyone by surprise. It will come like a thief. For some, it will be a pleasant surprise. For others, a horrifying surprise. But the timing will be a surprise for everybody, even those who are expecting it. Peter also said in verse 10 that Christ's return will bring fire to this present heaven and earth. The heavens, meaning what we see when we look up into the sky, will disappear with a roar. The elements, that's probably the sun, moon, and stars, will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Literally, will be found. That means they will be exposed to God's wrath. There will be no protection for the earth. There will be no heavenly barriers between the earth and God's wrath. There will be no place for anyone on the earth to hide. 
For those who are not ready, teachers who deny that Christ is coming back. His return will be a terrible day for them. But remember, Peter is writing to Christians. He's writing to men and women who love Jesus, who believe that he is coming back. And Peter wants them to see what Christ's return means for them. That's what he moves on to in verse 11. Since then, everything will be destroyed in this way. Or since then, all these things will be destroyed in this way. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Peter says you ought to live holy and godly lives. What does that mean exactly? Holiness and godliness are words that are very often misunderstood. Maybe when you hear those words, it makes you think of someone who's a bit detached from reality. Someone who kind of floats dreamily through life, pronouncing a blessing here and there. A bit like a Christian version of a Buddhist monk. Maybe they even have a special holy-sounding voice when they pray or when they speak at the front. But that's not the picture the Bible gives when it talks about holiness and godliness. When the Bible calls Christians to be holy and godly, It's calling them to live a life that reflects the character of God. He is holy and he is God. The more you and I are holy and godly, the more we will be like him. And God is not detached from reality. The God of the Bible does not float around in the clouds blissfully unconcerned about anything. Now the Bible tells us He works hard every day. Jesus said, my father is always at his work. It's John chapter 5. God doesn't just create the universe, he keeps the universe working. He makes the grass grow. He provides us with food, water and light. Right now as I'm talking, God has given me life and breath to do it. The point is, being godly does not mean being dreamy and detached from life. It means that as we live day by day, we live in a way that reflects God's character. As we are up to our elbows in the responsibilities and challenges and disappointments and joys of real life, we think and speak and behave in ways that honor God. God himself is active in every area of life. So holiness and godliness should have a bearing on every area of our lives. When the TV remote or the mouse for the computer or the iPhone is in our hand, does the way we use it reflect holiness and godliness? Or a lack of holiness and godliness? When we spend our money or speak to our parents or our children or our spouse, when we're on our company's time, when we're caring for a dying relative, when we're dealing with an employee, do our lives give evidence of holiness and godliness or lack of holiness and godliness? That's what Peter is talking about in verse 11. 
Now it has to be said, living in this way will make us stick out. It will make us odd. No matter how normally we might dress and talk, living this way will make us seem odd to other people. Not too long ago, Megan organized a Saturday morning for some of the girls with Paula Harris. Paula presented a biblical blueprint for sexual purity. And some people wondered, well, is that a bit too extreme? If we follow the Bible's teaching, aren't we going to seem odd? Well, yes, that's the whole point. The way this world does its relationships is not generally God's way. We could say the same about the way this world uses its money and time. There's no way around that. To live a holy and godly life is to open yourself up to ridicule. And we shouldn't kid ourselves and think that our time and culture is unique in this. It's always been this way. The kinds of pressure might change, but true holiness and godliness are always countercultural in this present age. In the New Testament, the believers in Corinth lived in a time and place where sexual immorality was normal. Paul had to challenge people in the church there to stop visiting prostitutes. So let's not imagine that New Testament believers somehow lived in a purer, more upright time than we do. Holiness and godliness are always countercultural. The question is not, how can we tone down God's standards so we don't get ridiculed? The question is, are we willing to accept the ridicule and follow God anyway? The values and standards of this world are like a super powerful magnet. Unless we set ourselves to pursue holiness and godliness, we'll just get sucked into line. We'll fall in line with the way of life that is unholy and ungodly. It doesn't take any effort at all to live like the world around us. It'll just happen. But Peter says, don't go with the magnetic pull of the world around you. Make up your mind to live a holy and godly life. Of course, the big question is, why? We all know that living God's way is hard. We all know that it makes us seem weird. We all know it can cause us to be rejected and laughed at. So why would we do it? Peter says, do it because it's an investment in the future. Look again at the flow from the middle of verse 11. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Imagine you had a million pounds to invest and you decide you want to invest it in a company. You narrow down the options to two companies and you do an assessment of both of them. And this is what you come up with. The first company is the biggest company in the world at the moment. It's the one everybody invests in. And because of that, there's a lot of prestige involved if you invest there too. 
But there's one catch with this first company. It's going to crash. It's certain. It could happen any day. And when it does crash, everyone who invested in it will be left with nothing. They will lose everything. That's the first company. The second is very different. It doesn't seem a popular investment. In fact, lots of investors haven't even heard of this company. And many who have heard of it wouldn't even consider investing in it. But you discover something surprising about this second company. One day it's going to have a monopoly. It will put every other company out of business. It's certain it could happen any day. And when it does happen, those who invested in it will be seen to be the wisest investors of all. And of course, the rewards will be massive. So you've got your million pounds. Which company are you going to invest in? Peter says that's how it is with living a holy and godly life. It's a wise investment in the future. One day, this present world order with its standards and its wisdom and its measures of what's valuable and what counts as success, one day all of that is going to be exposed to the fire of God's judgment. And it isn't going to stand up. Those who invested their lives in it are going to lose everything. But after God's fire of judgment, the world will be made new. And those who invested in that future world, they are going to be the rich ones. One of our greatest problems is that we're short-sighted. I can read my notes fine without glasses. But I wear glasses because your faces look blurry without my glasses on. And I do like to know who's asleep and who's awake. So I can keep a record when I get home. I'm short-sighted. And for many of us, the future of this world is blurry because our focus is all on today. It's all on what seems to be worthwhile today, what will get us accepted and respected today, what will bring us rewards today. We're short-sighted. And we need to put on Bible glasses so that we can see the future clearly. If we do that, we realize it's not wise to invest our lives in this present age. It's going to crash. We are wise to invest our lives in the new heaven and earth. And we do that, Peter says, by living holy and godly lives. Seeking to honor God with our lives. Seeking to reflect God's character in all that we do. Now, just to be clear, when I say don't invest in this present age, I'm not saying we should quit our jobs, we should ignore people, and we should destroy the environment. This is about not making our decisions based on the priorities and the treasures of this present age. It's about living life to the full based on the priorities and treasures of the age to come. That's what we're talking about. I enjoyed listening to Mike's sermon about heaven from a few weeks ago. And Mike pointed out that if we belong to Christ, our future is not going to be some non-physical disembodied existence. 
Scripture is more than clear that God has eternal plans for this physical world he created. He has eternal plans for the physical bodies he's given us. When Christ returns, creation will be renewed. This physical world has been devastated and corrupted to its core by sin. But it will be purified. It will be healed. It will be made new. In Romans 8, Paul says, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Now that may mean it's almost unrecognizable to you and me. We've never experienced a physical world without sin and corruption. Nor have we experienced a physical body without sin and corruption. But one day we will. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, the body that is sown or buried in dishonor will be raised in glory. He goes on to say that our mortal bodies will be clothed with immortality. Our physical bodies will be made fit for the physical new heaven and earth. The parts of the Bible that tell us most about our future are the first two chapters and the last two chapters. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. Those four chapters describe the created world before sin and corruption and then the recreated world after sin and corruption have been destroyed. God is not going to obliterate or abandon his creation. He's going to remake it. Peter says this new heaven and earth will be the home of righteousness. Righteousness will be natural there. It's not natural in this current heaven and earth. But there we will have perfect communion with God. We will worship and serve him with perfect holiness and godliness. Remember the point Peter is making here. He's telling us that pursuing holiness now is an investment in the future. We mustn't be short-sighted. We must look at what's ahead of us. And we must let that determine the way we live now, today. That's what he says in verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, that's the new heaven and earth, the home of righteousness, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. That's at peace with God. When a man or woman are preparing to get married, they begin to make changes in their lives in preparation for married life. Their upcoming marriage begins to affect the decisions they make about their money. It affects their relationships with other people. They aren't married yet, but they're no longer available for romance with whoever they meet. The engaged person begins to live in the light of their married future. And Peter's point here is that as Christians, the future we're looking forward to must impact our lives now. We're not available for certain kinds of behavior. And we will prioritize certain other kinds of behavior. Peter says, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. 
Back in verse 10, Peter used the same word to describe what's going to happen on the earth when Christ returns. The NIV says, the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Literally, it will be found. When Christ returns, everything will be found out. It will be seen for what it is, good or bad, sinful or holy. We want to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. That language is taken from the Old Testament. Sacrifices offered to God were to be without spot or blemish. They were to be without any impurity. Peter says, you and I are to make every effort to be like that. Now I know when we hear the word purity, we often think only in terms of sexual purity. But the word has a much wider sense and meaning than that. It includes being pure in our motives. Not pretending to serve God when really we're serving ourselves. It means being pure in our speech, telling the truth instead of telling lies. It means being pure in our willingness to forgive. It means loving and giving without expecting to get anything back. In fact, the words translated spotless and blameless here are the words Peter used in his first letter to describe Jesus Christ. If we want to see what a spotless and blameless life looks like, we need to look at Jesus. We are to make every effort to be like him. Of course, you and I hear this and we think, that's hard, that's daunting. Sure it is. That's why Peter says, make every effort. Yesterday I came across a section in a book from Tim Chester. It's a bit of a long quote, but I think it's worth reading to you. He begins by mentioning that he was speaking up at Keswick Convention in the Lake District. And then he says, During a break, I climbed the mountain Skiddaw with a friend, approaching the summit from the steeper west side. It was hard work. The final push is across loose rock at a 45-degree angle. Some of you can picture what he's describing here. Each step is agony. The calves are aching as you try to lift your weight on tired legs. It feels like a form of torture. And this is what we do for leisure. So why do we do it? Why don't we just give up? Because we are confident that the view from the top will make all the effort seem worthwhile. And so it was for me and my friend. This is a great picture of the way we are sanctified by faith. Sometimes it can be agony. Each step is hard work. You feel like giving up, but you press on. Because faith tells you that the view from the top will be glorious. Faith is fixing your eyes on the mountaintop, the mountaintop of God's eternal glory. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Invest in the future by pursuing holiness now.
What's the alternative to this? What if we decide we're going to invest our life in the values and priorities of this present world? Then we will not have a home in the home of righteousness. If we place no value on holiness and godliness here, if we refuse to stick out here, if we're determined to fit in here, then we will fit in. And when Christ returns, we will be swept away along with those we fitted in with. We will share the destiny of this present world. Peter has encouraged us to look forward. Does he have any more help for us? Well, in verses 15 to 18, he just encourages us to grow strong by learning and keeping in mind the story you are part of. Verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. You and I are part of a story that began in God's mind in eternity past. It's a story that will reach its climax when Christ returns. And today we're living in the last few pages of that story. We live in the time of God's patience. God is not asleep. He's not working on some other project off to the side. He's graciously giving men and women opportunity to repent. God's patience has meant salvation for you and me, hasn't it? If we're trusting him. Why is it helpful for us to remember this? It's helpful because each one of us has lived our whole lives without seeing Christ return. Whether that's 10 years or 70 years or more. We've lived a lifetime and Christ hasn't come back. So it's very easy for us to be swayed by the scoffers that Peter mentioned in the early part of this chapter. Those who say God's delay is evidence that he's never coming back. If you and I are going to stand strong in the face of those scoffers, we need to learn and we need to keep in mind that we're part of one great story that stretches through history. History is God's story. History is not just a random assortment of details about battles and empires and kings. Over and above those details, history is the unfolding of God's plan to save and renew his creation. The center point of history was Jesus' death and resurrection. And today, you and I live in the ongoing story. We live in the time of God's patience. Men and women have opportunity to come and find salvation in Christ. God is not absent. He's not powerless. He's waiting patiently. His plan is perfectly on course. He's gathering in his people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. God's the shepherd, finding and saving his lost sheep, gathering every single one into his fold. 
When you and I know and keep in mind the story we're part of, then God's delay is not a reason for us to doubt. It's reason to praise him for his patience and his grace. It's reason to expect his return and be ready for it and call others to get ready. That's why a book like this one is so helpful for us, Finding Your Place in God's Story. I recommended this this morning. Peter says, this way of looking things, it's not just me who looks at things this way. He says, our dear brother Paul writes the same things. God inspired him to write them. And then we come to this comment in the second half of verse 16. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Maybe we read this and we take comfort that even Peter found parts of the New Testament hard to understand. But look at the point Peter is actually making. The people who distort Paul's letters are the ignorant and unstable. Ignorant doesn't mean stupid here. It means the person who is uninstructed. And the unstable person is the one who is insecure in their faith because they are uninstructed. So Peter is not taking a swing at Paul here. He's not saying, dear brother Paul needs to employ an editor. Peter is explaining why people misunderstand and distort Paul's letters. It's because they are uninstructed and therefore unstable in their faith. Peter's not talking about intelligence here. It's possible to be highly intelligent and well-educated and yet be superficial in our knowledge of the Bible. This is not about a lack of ability to understand Scripture. It's a question of lack of application and attention to Scripture. These people are ignorant because they have been unwilling to learn. No doubt Peter has false teachers in mind here and those who are led astray by false teachers. His implication is that both will be held responsible for their wrong understanding. Those who distort Scripture and those who are taken in by distortions of Scripture do so to their own destruction. Verse 17 begins literally, You therefore... Peter's saying to these believers, you are not to be like that. You are not to be ignorant and unstable. We have a responsibility to study scripture so that we understand the story we're part of. Instead of being ignorant and unstable, Peter says in verse 17, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. How do we make sure we're on our guard? By growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Which is just another way of saying, grow strong 
by learning and keeping in mind the story you are part of. Jesus is the Savior who was promised in Genesis chapter 3, the one who would come to crush Satan's head. He's the one who did that definitively at the cross. He's the one who is now risen and interceding for us at the Father's right hand. He's the one who has sent his Spirit to comfort and guide and strengthen us. He's the one who will one day split the skies when he returns for his people. He's the one who will welcome us and shine on us and walk with us in the new heaven and earth. And he will receive glory from us forever and ever. You and I grow strong as we take the time and trouble to understand the story we're part of. How are we to live in the present as we look forward to the future? We're to invest in the future by pursuing holiness now. And we're to grow strong by learning and keeping in mind the story we're part of. Let's remind ourselves of that story as we sing in Christ alone.